We know Georgia politics from Peachtree Street to Pennsylvania Avenue. Politically Georgia podcast delivers exclusive news and analysis five days a week by a team of veteran political insiders watching your public officials. Hosted by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Greg Bluestein, Bill Nygut, Tia Mitchell, and Patricia Murphy. Listen weekdays at 10 a.m. on WABE 90.1. Stream everywhere or at AJC.com forward slash podcasts. News and analysis five days a week from Politically Georgia podcast. From the studios of Fox 5 in Washington, D.C., you are on the Hill. Tom Fitzgerald here with you. This time on the Hill, we are joined by our guest. He is the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, Zach Twilliger. And we welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Fitz. All right, so you've not been in the job that long. Um, tell people what a U.S. Attorney does. Sure. Because <laughs> so. Lord knows we've heard a lot of U.S. Attorneys in the news lately. So what does a U.S. Attorney do? Yes, I think, you know, the civics teachers yeah. out there owe us a little something. We've given them the lesson on the executive branch <laughs> early this year. But yes, uh, so as a U.S. Attorney, you're the chief federal law enforcement officer for your district. We've got 94 districts across the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, my particular district, or the district with which I'm blessed to serve, is in the Eastern District of Virginia. Basically, uh, Virginia's divided in half, and I have the half that is Alexandria, Richmond, and then over to um, Newport News and Tidewater in the Virginia Beach area. My colleague Thomas Cullen has the mm-hmm. other half. It's a lot of territory. It is. A lot of territory and a lot of um, courtrooms, too. There's actually two courtrooms for the So there's Eastern four District? courthouses. Four, four, four courthouses. courthouses. Richmond, Newport yeah. News, Norfolk, and Alexandria. That is a lot of territory. Yes, yeah, a lot of territory. So in taking this job, you're not new to the Justice Department, certainly. You, you've been in the Justice Department for quite a while. What, what other jobs have you held? Sure. So I got my start in the Eastern District of Virginia as what they call an assistant United States attorney. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're uh, if your listeners or viewers are focused on law and order. You know, I'm the DA, uh, mm-hmm. assistant DA who goes and actually tries the cases. And so I did that for about a decade, mm-hmm. um, focusing on violent crime, corporate compliance, fraud. Um, I had a long uh, stint as an MS-13 prosecutor, human trafficking mm-hmm. prosecutor. So I did that job. Um, then I served as a fellow to Senator Chuck Grassley on the mm-hmm. Judiciary Committee for a year. It's a program by which they send prosecutors to the Hill to help educate lawmakers on what's really happening out there in the trenches as prosecutors. And then I spent 18 months um, in the nucleus of the Justice Department in the Office of Deputy Attorney General. And as almost anyone now knows, that is Mm -hmm. occupied by Rod Rosenstein. And I finished my time there as his chief of staff before being named U.S. Attorney. So you've got a little bit of experience. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've been really fortunate that the majority of my uh, 12-year career, almost all of it, frankly, has been with DOJ. What made you want to get into the law? So I come from a family of service. Um, I'm one of those grandchildren of the greatest generation. My grandfather Mm -hmm. lied about his age uh, to get into the Navy, ended up serving the Pacific Theater. His ship was sunk. And I think his values, which then he passed on to my father's and through my father to me, it's just always public service has always been in my blood. Mm -hmm. Um, My dad was an assistant United States attorney, um, started his career in Washington, D.C., I actually was born um, around the same time that President Reagan was shot, and they had the hospital cordoned off uh, because of Reagan. And so I actually, uh, in order to get in to see my mom and me, who was having some trouble because I was a, a preemie, mm-hmm. he had to show his uh, DOJ credentials to get past sort of the authority line so you to were, see me. You were born in the hospital yeah. while Ronald Reagan was recovering yes. from the assassination attempt? Yes. So that's that's sort of my Washington, D.C. story. That is, a, that is amazing. Yeah. Um, well, then... One of the things that, you know, sometimes when I talk to attorneys about, especially ones who are on 
the prosecutorial side or, or in the DOJ or anything like that. There are paths people can pick in, in life and careers. What do you think drove you towards the path that you're on right now, as opposed to, sure. you know, maybe, you know, private corporate law or, or, or something else? What, what was it about it doing this job, being a prosecutor, being in the Justice Department that pointed you more in that direction than maybe, say, another direction? I really appreciate that question, Fitz. I mean, for me, it's twofold. One is, I think like many young men, my dad is my hero. Mm -hmm. And watching him both in court as an assistant United States attorney, and then later he held um, high-level jobs at the department, but to hear him talk about his work every day, and frankly, when you're in AUSA, some of your closest friends are also law enforcement, whether mm -hmm. it be state, local, federal. So when we would have family barbecues during my impressionable years, it was DE agents. It was FBI agents. It was um, state troopers who were there. And so you, you kind of get that on your on your skin almost. Yes, it's osmosis. It is, and yeah. um, and it just it seemed like a way to serve. I did not. I have not served in the military. Mm -hmm. I will be the first to admit it's not only one of my greatest regrets, but it's one of my greatest guilts. And so I feel as though this is a way. Certainly not the sacrifice that our men and women in arms make, but this is my way of giving back. So I feel strongly about that. And then for me, I went to law school and I was like a duck to water when it came to criminal law. It's, it's all about people. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the job of being a prosecutor is all about people, witnesses, victims, juries, mm -hmm. defendants. And, and for me, the, the enjoyment of life is interacting with people. Did you go into law school knowing from the get-go what you wanted to do? Or was it a process like for some of us where you enter college and there's nine things you want to do, and it's the process of just you know winnowing it down to a singular profession. Like many stubborn people, I got to a point as an undergraduate that I thought I'm going to do. Both my parents are lawyers. My mom's a very mm -hmm. accomplished lawyer in her own right. I am not going to be a lawyer. So I tried everything else. You other said you're than not going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to be a lawyer. <laughs> and then I just kept coming back to it. Yeah. And then um, I had a an experience where I'd been an intern um, in the Eastern District of Virginia, mm -hmm. and I saw the power for good that prosecutors could have. And in, and in fact, one my, my aha moment was um, there was a woman named Brenda Paz who was a federal mm -hmm. witness. She was killed by MS-13. And I saw the closing argument in that case. And an assistant United States attorney named Patricia Giles gave that closing argument. And I watched her in that moment fight evil. And I mm -hmm. just thought, this is what I want to do. And that was my moment. And now to be back leaving this office is just, I pinch myself every day. You know, one of the things I tell people often when they come to Washington, obviously they always want to go to, you know, the Smithsonian. They want to see the memorials. But I often tell them, if you can, go see a federal proceeding. Go see a Supreme Court argument because the federal courts, I think, unfortunately, and I'll get on my stump here about no cameras in the courtroom, yeah. um, I, I find it almost tragic because I, I find that to be some of the best of our government at work in the federal court system right now, and it's largely invisible uh, to a lot of people. So I remember the Brenda Paul's case as well, and you know that's one of the ones that I think you know people uh, don't get to experience because mm -hmm. they they don't get to see it as well you, you talked about that case and, and i want to move on to to ms-13 you were a prosecutor of cases that involved uh, this gang um the president talks about ms-13 quite often um in regards to illegal immigration you've been on the front lines of this i've covered it as a reporter um they seem to be um living up to their billing as being 
dangerous and, uh, and violent. You've been up close with it. What is their what is their marching orders? What why do they have this grip? Not only are the communities they prey on, but also their members. It's a great question. I think MS-13, it's very unique, and you have to go back to its underpinnings. The individuals who started MS-13 were the product of a very bloody civil war in El Salvador. And during that time, you had some of the first MS-13 members who fled to the Los Angeles area as refugees. Mm -hmm. And once they got there, they were getting picked on by the existing organized crime elements. And the one thing they had that those elements didn't was just a complete comfort with violence because they, they had been exposed to it. They grew up in a war zone. Mm -hmm. They would walk past bodies, stacked casualties from the Civil War on their way to school. Um, they were told to guard what little their families had, um, you know, cut, shoot anybody who comes near you. And so when they got to the Los Angeles area, particularly the Ramparts area, and they started to be, um, you know, messed with by existing organized crime, they were just very comfortable with violence, and that is the underpin underpinning of their entire gang. What's different about them structurally than, say, traditional organized crime in this country that we used to? Because when I was in New Jersey, you know, you used to cover organized crime, sure. RICO cases, and things like that, and there did seem to be um, communications between different families, and there did seem to be kind of uh, a, a connection and an organization there. Is is MS-13 in our area necessarily connected to, say, MS-13 on the West Coast? Yes, and so the way MS-13 operates now, and it has evolved. I mean, having been in this game myself for 12 years, it's evolved over the last 12 years that I've been involved. Right now, the leadership structure comes out of El Salvador. Any MS-13 member who's operating within the gang in, whether it be Northern Virginia, whether it be California, whether it be Charlotte, North Carolina, is going back to El Salvador in that leadership for their guidance. Um, and so I think that makes them different. The other thing that makes them different is they don't have the profit-generating mechanisms that, say, the cartels do or La Cosa Nostra did through racketeering. A lot of these individuals work day jobs, um, and they work very uh, low-income day jobs. The double lives. Yeah, and then yeah. they're gang members at night. Yeah. Um, and in their gang, unlike a lot of what we see in our Tidewater area, they're not fighting over drug territory. Mm. They're fighting just for violence' sake. You're from another gang, you're from another rival country, or you didn't join us, you broke our rules, we're going to come after you. Seems pointless. Well, I think to them it's an ethos. There's a, there's a tremendous amount of bravado and machismo involved. And one of the things that is just truly tragic, one, there's only three ways you can leave the gang. Mm. Through the cemetery. Uh, if you, uh, they say the gang will take you three places. That's what the three dots mean. Mm -hmm. uh, the cemetery, the morgue, or the hospital. And um, they sort of conflate cemetery and morgue. But um, those are the only three places you can go. So as a middle schooler, if you were asked by somebody, you know, potentially, you know, at knuckle point to say, hey, you know, Fitz, join our gang. Mm -hmm. what, what have you and I have done if we're new to this country or we grew up here and there's this group? You join the gang. You join the gang. Yeah. And then you can't leave. Yeah. And then they've got you because they kill members who try to leave. They kill members who try and cooperate with law enforcement. I mean, most of the individuals they've killed recently have been folks who have violated their own gang's rules. Mm -hmm. I have a very close friend who lives in El Paso, and he tells me often that in El Paso, uh, because they are right on the border, that generally they don't have a lot of the problems mm -hmm. that we see, say, in northern Virginia, Fairfax County, a areas that have been plugged by MS-13. Um, one of the things that people have connected is gang activity and drug activity. I, I, from what I hear you say, that that is not necessarily as connected as maybe some people believe it is. 
So I think it differs by region. In the Northern okay. Virginia region, we have we have um, dedicated drug traffickers. Mm-hmm. MS-13 along the border, MS-13 in other areas may be engaged in a lot of drug trafficking. In Northern Virginia, it's some, but what I saw was the way that they started to branch out and make their money was through mm-hmm. human trafficking and sex right. trafficking rather than narcotics trafficking. Let's talk about the drug situation in this country right now because opioids, fentanyl especially, um, have just been killing people at alarming uh, rates. I I don't know, and including the person who's sitting in this chair right now, anybody whose family has not been affected by this. Yes. Um, How did it get to this point, and is there anything on the prosecutorial side you can do to stop it because it seems like the war on drugs has gone on for nearly 40 years now and it's a war we continue to fight and if we haven't won it by now there seems every time a new generation of more deadly drugs on the horizon so so what's your charge as far as your position as US attorney that you can affect some change in this area so I think it all starts with our chief mission public safety and you Mm -hmm. you hit it right on the head our number one public safety threat right now perhaps across the country setting national security aside because you never know what's Mm -hmm. waiting in the wings and we're constantly vigilant on that front but as it comes to a a real and present danger at our face every day happening right out on the street outside of this studio you're absolutely right fentanyl and opioids it's a triple-headed monster pure fentanyl coming in from China I mean, what people realized is you can make this stuff from a poppy or you can make it in a lab and you can make it in a lab a heck of a lot cheaper. And then you step on the doses and and distribute it at the same expense. The problem is if you are a user who's built up a tolerance and you think you are getting or an, an addict and you think you are getting one thing, you take one pill that hasn't been properly calibrated in a clandestine lab um, and crushed into something, you're dead. Um, And so it's a huge, huge problem. In addition, you have individuals, um, you know, what they call pill parties, where Mm -hmm. somebody reaches into a bowl and takes something. And if you've got a drug in there that's got fentanyl or carfentanil in, it's lethal. Um, And so that's a huge aspect of it. It's it's a terrifying epidemic that's underway right now. I don't think people realize quite how you're literally playing Russian roulette um, by... uh, by, uh, by using this stuff. Um, and not to make too fine of a segue, um, your office recently um, charged the first Russian individual with um, interfering or attempting to interfere with the 2018 election. We know 17 intelligence agencies in the United States government have endorse the uh, position that uh, Russia has been trying to interfere in U.S. elections. In 2018, um, where are we at? Are we in a better position now to defend against this, or will this activity continue inbound, and we just need to continue to do more to stop it? You know, I think that's that's probably a question that someone in the intelligence community, the FBI, or, or at the higher levels of government could answer. But what I can say from my perspective and the mm-hmm. view uh, that I have of the Eastern District of Virginia, and as you know, a lot of the cyber backbone still exists, the original mm-hmm. Internet backbone, AOL, and sort of the Dulles Corridor, so we pay attention to these things. 
based on the allegations in our indictment that you mentioned um, with Miss uh, Husanova, mm -hmm. what we allege there, and as you know, they're just allegations, but we allege there is there was a disinformation campaign attempted to sow discord. So when somebody, a Russian bot or a Russian troll, tries to emulate someone sitting in Des Moines, Iowa, Iowa to get people riled up about a divisive issue, that's a problem. Um, and so one of the reasons we felt so strongly about that case and getting that case out in the public sphere is to let people know who you're communicating with in social media, what you're hearing very well could be someone outside the United States who's trying to impact our process. So I, in answer to your question, I mm -hmm. do think it will continue. I think we in the law enforcement and intelligence community are aware and what we're trying to do is make the public aware. Yeah, I was looking at some old paperwork the other day and I came across some emails from 2006 and I thought to myself, well, this was pre-Twitter. Yeah. You know, um, it's pre-Facebook. Yeah. Um, are are we up to speed where we where we need to be as far as our laws? Because it seems like you're dealing almost every year with a whole nother range of things that didn't existed, you know, twenty four months ago. Messaging apps, yeah. um, social media, different kinds of ways people are communicating to each other. You know, laws are kind of set in stone. Mm -hmm. Laws laws kind of are made and kind of stay there. Um, and you're somebody who's younger. I mean, is that a frustration at all that, that that some you know sometimes you're dealing with something that might not have existed 12 months ago? Sure. You know what I think is interesting is the way I look at the criminal code, and that's really mm -hmm. all I can speak to. But as you right. look at what we call Title 18, where the, a lot of these violations are found, you have something called wire fraud, mm -hmm. um, which may originally have been thought of as it related to the telegraph. Well, it applies to the internet. Right. So I think the laws for the most part are there. That doesn't mean there aren't special specialized things or tweaks around the margin, or if you have something where you have, you know, um, both juveniles sending, um, e you know, explicit pictures to one another, doesn't mean we don't want to do that. However, what we need to catch up on is in the enforcement side. Mm -hmm. We are always behind the private sector, and, and because that's where innovation's driven. Those people are driving right. that way. The thing that worries me most is, you I'm sure have talked about the going dark problem, yeah. I mean encryption. Um, and it's a double-edged sword. People want their data to be protected. I mean, look at this last large data breach. Mm -hmm. I understand that. But for law enforcement, it's become incredibly hard to get the critical information that we need to solve cases. Well, we've even seen that in some instances, you know, like the mass shooting in San Bernardino, where there was a legal struggle over Apple, whether or not they would help get the passcode off the phone. Precisely. Um, so, you know, that's another area that maybe you know you pre your predecessor 30 years ago didn't have to deal with without question yeah um w w you've been in the job how many about six months about six months now um we know dana buente mm -hmm. one of your predecessors we, we know some of the others that have come along they they all kind of have a different take on how they've approached the job what they want to do with it have you given any thought to that what what, what you want to use as far as your time in this position and accomplish Yes. So I think having grown up as uh, as you have through, I mean, look at you now and where you started in your, um, you know, lower level uh, positions within media, mm -hmm. it's the same. So you probably right. had some thoughts growing up of, well, if I ever get the opportunity, this is what I'm going to do. So I've been right. giving this a lot of thought. You've been thinking but, about it your whole life? Um, yeah. I'd say maybe the last 10 years. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, but for me, I think that my main goal is public safety, protect as best I'm able, be a part of the protection of the individuals in the Eastern District of Virginia. But second, leave the place better than I found it. And what that means to me is structurally setting up a strong office, 
rebuilding some relationships that maybe had atrophied, um, and motivating the workforce regarding our mission. Uh, I think it I think it can happen when you have a change in administration, when you have change in leadership, and you have a gap there before uh, the next leader comes in. Folks can become complacent, and and as you know, um, you've got to have motivated people. So for me, a big part of what I do is try to have a personal touch with each and every employee. Get, get them in the position where they can have the most success, all geared towards our public safety mission. So I hope whenever it is that I leave this job, I'll have left my predecessor an extremely strong ship to steer, and I, I will have built task forces and relationships that are not only combating the problems of today, but looking forward to what's coming around the corner. You serve at a time, though, that I think probably maybe going back to Watergate um, might be one of the most divisive times in, in this city right now. Yeah. Uh, does it take discipline on your part if people try to drag you into conversations or, you know, withdraw opinions from you about different things like that? Do people come at you with that stuff? It does, you know, but I'll be honest with you. So much of that is being done at a high level. I mean, mm -hmm. when I was at the Department of Justice working in the deputy's office, that was a lot of what, you know, was going on in the conversations and the communications against or through different aspects of government. Now... I get dragged into that somewhat, but it's much more about I get to operate in the world where I'm partnering with local police chiefs, mm -hmm. that I am working with different advocacy groups to get into schools to talk about gangs and opioids. I am getting the resources from Maine Justice to support my prosecutors traveling to go do international national security cases. So I do feel I'm I'm just barely beneath a lot of those arrows mm -hmm. now. And um, and what I try and do is just focus on my core mission. And, and when you arrived, how have you found morale in the Justice Department, especially in, in your office as well? So I think it's, you know, for, for a lot of folks, um, one of the things that I thought this Justice Department under Attorney General Sessions did very well was rebuild our relationships with state and local law enforcement and federal law enforcement for a while. Um, I think those... I think the morale had been had low. those frayed. Those had frayed, yeah. and it had been low. And look, we had some challenges. Without question, there were challenges of the last years uh, of the prior administration um, with law enforcement, community relations, some tragic incidents. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I'm not saying there was that anything was necessarily done wrong, but those relationships you hadn't had um an attorney general out there the way jeff sessions did backing the blue in the way that he articulated it that has been the biggest wind at our backs as far as getting uh, rebuilding these incredible relationships morale in the eastern district as someone once told me you can't break the eastern district it's there its right. core bones are so strong but what you can do is not see it operating at its optimum and i'm not sure that we're there yet um and i'm not sure how far it either went down or up before I got there but what I do know is I've got a vision for where I want us to go and what I see from people day in day out is just dedicated public service all right Zach Twilliger we appreciate you uh, spending some time with us on the On the Hill podcast. It was a pleasure to have you. Real pleasure to meet you. All right. That'll do it for uh, this time. You've been listening to On the Hill. Our guest has been uh, Zach Tewilliger. He is the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, and he joins us live from the Fox 5 Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm Todd Fitzgerald. We thank you for joining us this time. We'll see you next time on the Hill. Volvieron. Los McNugget Buddies are back at McDonald's. Y ahora tienen un nuevo look, diseñado por el streetwear designer Kerwin Frost. Cada buddy tiene su propio vibe, pero cuando el squad está completo, se ven fire. Complete your buddy squad ordenando the Kerwin Frost box. Cada caja incluye un buddy, tu elección de una Big Mac o unos 10-piece chicken McNuggets, papitas medianas y un refresco mediano. Disponible desde el 11 de diciembre. 
Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias.